chapter 11 this morning. I want to look at verses 1 through 15. The struggles. Yeah, there we go. Matthew 11, 1 through 15. The struggles and ministry of John the Baptist. I'm just getting used to this. Now we've got to leave this place. What's this? <laughs> All right. Uh, as far as uh, Matthew, we note the theme is Christ the King. And we have worked our way down to chapters 11 and 12, the rejection of the King. Throughout the book of Matthew, uh, a theme has been developing, showing evidence that Jesus is the prophesied divine human Messiah, promised in the Old Testament scriptures. That's really what Matthew is doing. He's showing to the Jewish people this expected Messiah that we've been expecting for many, many years, thousands of years, is now on the scene, has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have noted his legal right to the throne by way of having the proper genealogy, uh, Matthew 1 and 2. His forerunner credentials in that John the Baptist as his forerunner fulfilled prophecy perfectly, Matthew chapter 3. His moral right to the throne in overcoming the most intense time of temptation at the hands of Satan, Matthew chapter 4. His judicial right to the throne in the wisdom of his kingdom teaching, Matthew 5 through 7. And his authoritative right to the throne as seen in his power over disease, demons, and nature, Matthew 8 and 9. Well, Jesus then empowered the 12 disciples, calling them apostles, literally sent ones, uh, to also do kingdom sign miracles as an enhancement, really, of his ministry and sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's Matthew chapter 10. And that brings us to chapters 11 and 12. The time has now come for decision. The messianic credentials of Jesus have been on display for all the nation to see building to the climactic emphasis of his lordship authority. And now the issue is what would the response of the nation be? The main theme now put forward in Matthew 11 and 12 revolves around how the people should respond to Jesus. Got all this background that's been laid, all the evidence of him being the king, the Messiah, this promised one. Now what's the response of the nation going to be? That's chapter 11 and 12. And sadly, we find the response was largely one of rejection, as chronicled in these chapters. This rejection was led by the religious leaders and climaxed in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in chapter 12. You have to do something about all these miracles he's doing, right? How do you explain it? Well, they said he's doing it by the power of Satan. They never denied that he was doing it. They just said he's doing it by the power of Satan, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Climactic rejection. That's where it goes. Well, the rejection of Christ is seen in the rejection of his forerunner, John the Baptist. Jesus just got done saying, he who receives you receives me, Matthew 10.40. Well, they hadn't received John the Baptist, and they didn't receive Jesus either. Exceptions, of course, but the nations as a whole, and really speaking in terms of the religious leaders who really led the nation and kind of spoke for the nation. Well, let's pick it up. Matthew chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their city. So after commissioning the 12, 
and endowing them with miraculous kingdom powers as his special apostolic representatives, Christ then began his own teaching and preaching tour in Galilee, as noted here. Uh, when it says uh, to teach, uh, the word teach means to explain or give instruction, uh, probably about scripture and how it applied to himself. And his preaching evidently revolved around his message that the kingdom is at hand. Matthew 2 through 19 finds its parallel in Luke 7, 18 through 35. Matthew 4.12 has already mentioned John the Baptist's imprisonment, but background details are not mentioned until we get to chapter 14. Here in chapter 11, we have a glimpse of John's struggle in prison during the course of Christ's Galilean ministry. And you've got to kind of appreciate John the Baptist's struggle. All these are in the scriptures for a reason. And John the Baptist was such a rugged and strong guy. You'd think, boy, he never had struggles. Yeah, he did. He was human too. And we see the human side of John the Baptist in our study this morning. It's kind of encouraging to know uh, we're not the only one. Even these great stalwarts of the faith, these great prophets, these great men of God, they were still very human. Verse 2. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Now it is thought that John the Baptist, now in prison, the prison of Herod Antipas, had probably been there now for about a year or so. And John's crime was that he dared to speak out about the adulterous marriage of Herod to his brother's wife. And so Herod had him put in prison. That'll, that'll get you put away. You know, just speak out against the, the great immorality committed by the politically elite who have power to put you in prison. That's what happened. Well, in prison, John had heard about the miraculous works of Jesus. But he had one major question. He sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the coming one? Uh, the one we've been expecting? The, the coming one prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures? Are, are you that one or, or should we look for another? Now, this was not a question of carnal doubt, but rather one of puzzlement. Clearly, the idea of the coming one refers to the Messiah. All the way through the Old Testament, the prophets had prophesied of a coming deliver king. But here seems to be John's struggle. He had preached very clearly that the Messiah would bring judgment and deliverance. For example, notice his strong preaching here in Matthew chapter 3, 10 through 12. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That's figure of judgment. Even now. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing. And fire, that's judgment for those that are rejecting. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He's going he's to take care of business here. And gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up with chaff, burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John clearly saw the blessing aspect of Christ's ministry and all the healings and so forth. But where was the judgment that he'd been preaching. Where was the judgment on the wicked? 
the way he envisioned it was that judgment would immediately come on the wicked and then Jesus the Messiah would bring in the kingdom in keeping with his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, how could this prison experience be explained in light of this? In other words, he's saying to Jesus, did I miss something about you? You see, we often grapple with the timing, the timing. John's message was right on target, but he didn't understand the timing. Looking back now, we can clearly see that Jesus came presenting his credentials as the Messiah as seen in his kingdom miracles. The kingdom was being offered on the condition of repentance. But this was not the time for judgment. No, we're getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the timing. First, he must give Israel an opportunity to repent and receive him. You know, that's God's pattern. You know, uh, before God sent a flood that destroyed the entire world, what did he do? Well, there was 120 years of special grace through the preaching of Noah. As the Spirit was striving with mankind for 120 years, as it says in Genesis 6.3. God's pattern is first the grace invitation. And when that's rejected, then the judgment. Well, his first coming was all about grace. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace is extended first, and then judgment if that grace is rejected. Notice uh, a couple of verses to this end. John 1, 11 and 12. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. There's the problem. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. But he came uh, with the opportunity, giving the opportunity. John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It wasn't on a condemning mission. But that the world through him might be saved. So John did not see the truth of two separate comings. He thought this was it. Uh, He was preaching repentance. And those that repented, he thought, would immediately go into the kingdom. And those who uh, did not repent would immediately go to judgment. So he didn't get it. He didn't get it. It didn't add up to him. If Jesus was this coming one that he had been preaching about, who brings judgment and the kingdom immediately, as he understood it in his mind, then why was he now in prison facing death? He expected to go into the kingdom with Christ, not to death row, right? That's a little different understanding. (laughs) Uh, Ed Glasscock says, The Messiah was a king, and he was to rule Israel on David's throne. The Messiah would come in like Judas Maccabee. By the way, you know what the nickname for Judas Maccabee was, right? The Maccabean revolt back in in the intertestamental period, they called him the hammer. The hammer. That's what they're expecting. Uh, He says here, the the Messiah would, would come in like Judas Maccabee, the hammer. And drive out the foreign oppressors was assumed. That was just general assumption on the part of the Jews. This is how the Messiah is going to come in. That's what John the Baptist was. Man, you better repent because judgment's coming. It's going to flatten you. Evangelical commentary on the Bible. John is troubled not by what Jesus is doing, verse 2, but by what he is not doing. If Jesus is indeed the Messiah, where is the sweeping judgment that John predicted? doesn't add up. 
And why is the forerunner allowed to languish in prison? There's the question. There's what he's wrestling with. Now, there was a reason in his sermon, and Jesus did everything with exact precision. There was a reason in his sermon at Nazareth as he began his ministry. As he went to Nazareth, they gave him the scroll as he went into the synagogue, and he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And when he did that, he stopped mid-sentence, and he did so for a reason. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped. He stopped mid-sentence in, in our Bibles. Because it goes on to say, and the vengeance of our God. He wasn't, this wasn't the right timing. So he stopped. This was the year of the Lord's favor. A season of grace whereby an open invitation was being given to the nation to repent and receive Jesus as their Messiah. This was not the day of vengeance. That will come in due season at his second coming. But John did not understand all of this theology. We understand far more theology than John ever did in terms of where we stand, in terms of the full revelation of God. But John wasn't there, even as a prophet of the Lord. Again, I think this was an honest question seeking clarification, not rebel defiance. And God is patient with honest questions. He gives space for our weakness, as seen in how Jesus goes on to even defend John in the following verses. Notice the response first, though, to John the Baptist. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know what he is saying? John understood and looked at life through the lens of the Old Testament scriptures as he understood it. And those Old Testament scriptures were very clear about uh, the kingdom and what would happen in relationship to the kingdom. Isaiah 26 is a kingdom context. Your dead shall live. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see. More prophecy. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. Again, Isaiah 61, 1, uh, the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. All of these themes related to the coming Messiah and the kingdom. What Jesus was doing were prophesied kingdom sign miracles in perfect accord with kingdom realities, which served to show that he was the Messiah who brings in the kingdom. It's the proof. These were kingdom credentials of the Messiah. And then he says, okay, go tell John my, my Old Testament messianic credentials. I'm doing kingdom stuff that's going to happen in relationship to the coming of the Messiah in the kingdom. Go tell John that. But then he says this, verse 6, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This serves as a mild rebuke of John. And it serves as a reminder that all believers who recognize Jesus as the Christ are blessed. Now, of course, John knew this. You understand, John knew this. It was John who claimed to be the voice 
in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, John 1.23. It was John who said, there stands among you one whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, John 1.27. It was John who announced Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And it was John who testified that Jesus is the Son of God, John 1.34. And it was John who said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him, John 3.28. John was not renouncing all of this, just trying to make sense of his current situation in light of his understanding of, he, of what he thought the Messiah was going to immediately do. There's the, there's the issue for John. This was not rebel defiance. New International Bible Commentary. It is less what Jesus did and said that makes him a stumbling block for many. It is rather that he does not conform to what we think he ought to have done and said. <laughs> there's truth there. It's way too easy to assume a Jesus of our own making according to our human thinking. When in fact God's ways may be completely different. That is why we must not approach God with any preconceived ideas about who he is or how he works. We must let him tell us. For me, when the Bible speaks, it speaks with absolute authority. And when God speaks, that ends the argument. I don't make a contribution. We must let God tell us. This is the lesson that Jesus is teaching John at this point. You can't just trust your own logic here. Uh, I've got a plan. And you're blessed if you, if you accept that. Even if you don't understand everything that's happening with you right now and make sense of it all. You know, we have in the Old Testament scriptures, again, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, that's something worth thinking about, no pun intended. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Just God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. For as, how, much, how much so? Uh, in a big way. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. They're always so much greater. We, we can't possibly keep up with God. That's why we depend on revelation. Revelation. That's why I think it's so serious we start saying, well, you know, I think uh, God's got his thoughts and, and he kind of helps me along. But the world's got their wisdom and they kind of help me along. And I think we maybe have the best of both worlds. No, 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 no. Uh, we're talking the difference between heaven and earth here. Vance Havner, by the way, called this the forgotten beatitude. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You know what? We must let God be God. Let Jesus be Jesus. Don't try to conform him to our human thinking or our preconceived ideas. Even if we can't make sense of things, we must remain firmly camped on the truth of who Jesus is, knowing that he is Lord over all, and that he has a sovereign plan that he is working out. Even if we can't understand it. This is our calling. This relates to the walk of faith. It's our calling as believers. Whether it be Job. Whether it is John the Baptist. Or you. Or me. Now the idea of being offended. Is the idea of stumbling. Or being caught in sin. Just because Jesus isn't doing things the way we think he should be doing them can lead us into sin very quickly. The sin of challenging or doubting God. The way of the blessed, 
is not to be offended when things don't make sense. Don't blame Jesus. Don't be sinfully offended. Walk by faith. Never doubt in the dark what you've known to be true in the light. Charles Spurgeon notably said it this way. He actually did not say Isaiah, but anyway. Uh, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Indeed, that's true. Now, you know what's interesting here is Jesus did not really give John more insight. He just reminded him of what he already knew, which is that Jesus is the Messiah fulfilling prophecy. Now, John ended up going to his death without really receiving specific answers to his questions or understanding exactly how his prison experience fit in with the kingdom is at hand. That was his message, right? The kingdom's at hand. What's that take? We're going in. Uh, I'm not. That's the executioner. How's that fit? How's that fit with my message? I don't think John ever necessarily got it. Job had a similar experience. Likewise, he never got all the answers he was demanding. Sometimes God says, you have all the evidence you need. Just hold on to your faith, consistent with scriptural truth. That is the blessed position before God. Jesus, in effect, reminded John the Baptist of Scripture, took him back to Scripture. Well, verse 7 continues, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? It's kind of interesting. He gently rebukes John the Baptist, you know, as far as the message he has privately for John. But then before the people, he really defends John. John, in effect, needed to be strengthened in the faith. And sometimes we need that. We need somebody, well, in this case, it was the Lord, to kind of give us a little straight talk. You know, Jesus didn't coddle him here. Kind of gently, he was gentle, but he rebuked him. Jesus told Peter before his fall, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. We all need to be strengthened. And James says we all stumble in many things. And to strengthen John the Baptist at this point, Jesus sent him right back to the scriptures, showing him how he is the Christ who is fulfilling them. Yet at the same time, Jesus publicly defended John as a stable man of conviction by asking a series of rhetorical questions, which are all positive in relationship to John. First, Jesus asked them, referring to John, If they went out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken in the wind, metaphorically speaking. You see, a reed shaken in the wind is a picture of compromise. Bending any which way the winds of human opinion blow you. It's a picture of a person who lacks strong conviction. It really portrays a double-minded, vacillating person. And you know, James says a a double-minded person is unstable in all of his ways. I'm all in. Count on me. No, no, I'm out. I'm out. I'm all in. No, no. Unstable in all their ways. John was not that guy. He was not a fickle person tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, with every emotion, with every whim. John was not that guy. 
He was not a reed shaken in the wind. By the way, uh, here's what reed looks like. Pretty flimsy right there in the wind, right? Blowing around all over the place. That was not John. He was confused. He was puzzled. But he was not a man given to compromise as Jesus Christ is illustrating here. He was a man who would not bend and he would not bow to compromise. You say, well, he was just a weakling. Uh, Read the next verse. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? A softy? He's kind of a weakling? Weak little softy guy? Kind of a femi guy? Is that what you went out to see? Oh, no. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. John was not a softy like the politically elite who never have a real job in their life. John lived an austere lifestyle. He was a man's man if there ever was one. It's not a weakling, not a softy in any way, shape, or form. By the way, the word translated soft here is the same word translated homosexual in 1 Corinthians 6.9. It connotes softness or effeminacy. Uh, John was not a feminine, femi kind of guy. He was tough and he was rugged. Matthew 3, 4 says John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. John was no spoiled softy. Rather, he was a rugged prophet in the line of Elijah of Old Testament fame. D.A. Carson says, His question arose not from personal weakness or failure, but from misunderstanding about the nature of the Messiah. New Bible commentary, John was neither one who bowed to popular opinion nor one who sought an easy life. That was not the issue with John. Jesus continues, verse 9, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Jesus here answers his own question. Yes, John was a prophet, but he was more than a mere prophet. John not only prophesied, he himself was the fulfillment of the forerunner prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures. And that made him special over all the other prophets. Verse 10, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me. So Jesus here quotes scripture to show who John the Baptist was. In terms of the prophetic scriptures, specifically Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Jesus is saying, This is John. John was not merely a prophet, but rather Christ's messenger or forerunner who went before him to prepare the way by calling the people to repentance. By the way, Mark in his gospel, in Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3, combined the prophecy of of Malachi 3, 1, with that of Isaiah 40, verse 3, which reads, <clears throat> The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. William MacDonald says, Other men had prophesied the coming of Christ, but John was the one chosen to announce his actual arrival. It has been well said, John opened the way for Christ and then he got out of the way for Christ. Indeed, that's well said. Jesus continues his thought, verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. How's that for an affirmation? 
But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is here talking about the privileged position that John had as the forerunner to Christ. In this life, there was no higher position. And yet, all those who go into the kingdom will find themselves in an even greater position than that which John enjoyed during his earthly ministry. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said this to his disciples. Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it. And to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Jesus is telling, they're especially blessed. Many prophets desired to see the Messiah and did not. But John did. John had the high honor and esteemed privilege to immediately go before the Messiah and prepare the way for him. And then to announce him to the nation. Others had vaguely prophesied about the coming Christ, but John saw more clearly and more intimately than all of them. All the other prophets looked forward to this day, but John had the privilege to personally usher it in. And yet in the kingdom, all God's children will have an even greater access to Jesus than John ever knew. All the saints in the kingdom will see on a greater level than John ever did. Thus, even the least of the saints in the kingdom will be in a greater position than John was in his earthly ministry. Again, Ed Glasscock says, this was not intended to discredit John, for Jesus had been exalting him, but rather to signify how blessed and honored one is to be in the kingdom. Note the kingdom was yet future as John is regarded as not yet being in the kingdom at this point. And this is important because some want to claim that the kingdom is just a spiritual reality when in fact, biblically, it is a physical reality in which Christ will physically reign in Jerusalem on the throne of David. Now we come to verse 12, which is a difficult verse. And I know you're tempted to go to sleep at this point, but you really need to be alert at this point. Verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, I wish there was consensus on this verse, but believe me, among conservative, godly scholars, there is no consensus on this verse. It's a difficult verse because it can legitimately be understood in two different ways. And the problem is, if you have a problem, this is a good one, but the problem is both are theologically true. And so good commentators have differing views here, and this is not a place for strong dogmatism, although I'm going to tell you what I think. (laughs) Without strong dogmatism, I hope. Anyway, the issue is how to understand this phrase, suffers violence. Until, or from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. You see, in the Greek, the verb suffers can legitimately be taken as either in the middle voice or the passive voice. And how you take it determines how you interpret what is being said. Middle is reflexive in the sense that something does it to itself, with the idea then being the kingdom violently forces its own way. In contrast, passive is the idea of the action being forced upon it from the outside with the sense then being, 
The kingdom is being treated violently. A.T. Robertson, uh, in his word pictures, says, So then in Matthew eleven twelve, the form can be either middle or passive, and either makes sense, though in a different sense. There's the rub. Middle nuance. Here's the sense of it. The truth of the kingdom presses ahead relentlessly, forcefully advancing. The idea violently here is the idea forcefully advancing. And only the relentless, the determinedly committed, press their way into it. And an argument for this view is the cross-reference in Luke 16, 16, where the same verb is translated as suffers here in Matthew eleven twelve is translated there as pressing in Luke 16, 16. So in Luke, it seems to clearly show the conversion commitment of believers in spite of opposition. There we read Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. However, suffers in Matthew eleven twelve can just as legitimately be taken in the passive sense. And if taken that way, here is the sense. The truth of the kingdom suffers violence from rebel religious leaders who are seeking to seize it. And a most compelling argument for this view is the cross-reference found in Matthew 23, 13. Where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. They're getting in the way. Violently. Michael Block says this verse, speaking of Matthew 23, 13, parallels Matthew eleven twelve 12, and 13, where the religious leaders were bringing violence to God's kingdom program. Since they resisted the king, they were hindering the, the kingdom's coming and the ability of people to enter in. The rejection of Jesus by Israel's leaders effectually shut the door to the kingdom offering by God through his son upon earth. Well, in light of the surrounding context emphasizing persecution and what John was going through, this passive interpretation probably makes the most sense, at least to me and my studied opinion. But again, it can legitimately be understood, and I'm not dogmatic. Uh, understood two different ways. However, I want to uh, just to buttress my position a little bit. I want to uh, note a couple of things. In matters of interpretation, context is king. And of course, the other side says the same thing. Both want to argue context for their particular view here, but I think the context favors the latter view here. We noted in chapter 10, there are two great emphases. There's the matter of delegated power given to the apostles to do kingdom sign miracles. But then there's also a strong emphasis on persecution that would accompany the ministry. Uh, let me just review with you what we saw in Matthew chapter 10 leading up to chapter 11. Uh, Matthew ten sixteen, sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, what kind of context is that? Uh, that's kind of a violent one, right? Yeah, if you're the sheep, it's a violent one. Believe me. Uh, 10.22, you will be hated uh, by all for my name's sake. Uh, that's kind of a hostile context, a violent context. Uh, 10.28, do not fear those who kill the body. 10.34, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. 36, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus, what kind of an emphasis are you making all the way through chapter 10 here? 
This whole context of predictive persecution leads into the experience and question of John the Baptist in chapter 11. So the context is one of experiencing expected persecution. In addition to this, the context right after dealing with John's imprisonment goes on to address this generation's rejection of both John and Jesus as seen in the study we'll get to, not next week, but the week after that, our next study in, in Matthew, as seen in Matthew eleven sixteen through 19. So the point is this, right in the middle of this whole extended subject of persecution and rejection is Matthew eleven twelve, which in keeping with the greater context, I would argue, seems to relate to the violent opposition of people in response to the kingdom message. Jesus is saying, this hostile rejection is to be expected. You know, the kingdom is coming, but in the interim, it's not going to be pleasant. Matthew eleven twelve says, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence from the days of John the Baptist. From the beginning of his ministry which at the time of Jesus was speaking here, would have been about 18 months. It was John, you see, who burst onto the scene and started preaching, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus followed up with the same message. This message was met with violent opposition, especially on the part of the religious leaders and those rejecting it. In addition to the contextual argument, the most natural rendering of the language here, uh, that is violence and taking it by force, would seem to indicate this is the action of those hostile to the kingdom message. That's what I tend to think in context. Taking this as a violent response on the part of the unbeliever, which I tend to understand it that way, the idea is that the kingdom truth has been under attack since the time John began to preach it as seen in opposition to John the Baptist and then to the Christ he pointed to. So the pattern is clear. Persecution is to be expected. Yes, the kingdom was being offered. Yes, there were kingdom signs being exhibited. But the kingdom was not here yet. And until it comes, those rejecting the message of Christ will respond violently to it. They don't appreciate it. Verse 13... For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. The law and the prophets represent the whole of the Old Testament. The whole message of the Old Testament was really preparatory and looked forward to the coming of Christ. But John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And as such, he had the privilege to actually bring the message home, so to speak. In that no more was this message one of anticipation. The coming one. He has now come. The king is here. Hence the need for repentance so that they might go into the kingdom. William MacDonald says, When John stepped out on the stage of history, his unique role was not just prophecy. It was announcing the fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning Christ's first advent. Wow, how about that? How about bringing it all home? That's John's ministry. D.A. Carson, this establishes the primary function of the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel. It points to Jesus and the kingdom. 
By the way, as a side note, what was the collective experience of the Old Testament prophets up until John? Did they have a cushy life? I mean, you know, living in nice little royal places. Uh, were they well appreciated and accepted? Well, the first martyr of the church, what, what, did, what did he say? What did Stephen say? Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? Uh, can, you, can you name one? Uh, uh, which one? This was the standard treatment. Well, why should John think that he was any different? He proclaimed the kingdom as being in hand, but they were not there yet. What was missing? What was missing? What's this, this word called repentance? Repentance. Until Israel is repentant, the expectation is to be largely that of rejection and the persecution that goes with it. This will be the experience of God's people generally until the kingdom comes. In this, there is absolute consistency. Verse 14, Jesus says, And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Talking about John the Baptist. Well, what does this mean? Do we have a reincarnation here? No, no, we don't. Jesus was not saying that John the Baptist was literally Elijah. John had plainly said he was not Elijah in John 1, 21. However, John did come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. We know this from Luke chapter 1, verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist had an Elijah-like ministry in calling the people to repentance. If the people of Israel had responded, they would have gone into the kingdom. But you say, how can that be? Because then Christ would not have gone to the cross. Well, God knew they wouldn't receive him. And the cross was part of the plan all along. I like this from J. Vernon McGee, a longtime pastor, you know, teacher through the Bible, radio program. But he says, if Israel had accepted Christ at his first coming, would he have established the kingdom immediately? And would John the Baptist have been Elijah? The answer is yes. You say, how can that be? I have an answer for you. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. He says, I only know what Jesus said, and he can do things which I cannot explain. How, how about that? How, how big is your God? You know, he's got to conform to my three-pound brain, or I don't believe it. Oh, really? Maybe you need to check your brain. In fact, he says, he does a lot of things which I can't explain. I simply accept them. Ah, there you go. There you go. Clearly, there are two Elijah figures in relationship to prophetic history. After the martyrdom of John the Baptist, Jesus again renewed the promise that Elijah must come first and restore all things. This is after the death of John the Baptist. John did not do this, but Elijah will. In Matthew chapter 17, Jesus said, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. He, he's going he's to bring revival. He's going to bring about the restoration. But then he says something to really kind of be a juggernaut here. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. Has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. You see, prophetically, it is Elijah who comes before the Messiah to call Israel to repentance 
And ultimately, ultimately, Elijah will be successful. As Jesus said, he will restore all things. John the Baptist came in the role of Elijah, but was not successful in that sense. He experienced persecution and death. As you put it all together, the Messiah must have an Elijah, Elijah forerunner before he comes. That was true at his first coming in which John the Baptist in an Elijah-like role called the people to repentance because the kingdom was being offered on the condition of repentance. However, the people under their religious leadership at that time rejected Jesus Christ and called for him to be crucified. Prior to the second coming of Christ, Elijah will come as the forerunner to the Christ and he will succeed in calling the nation of Israel to repentance. Malachi is very clear. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That is the great tribulation, which is the second half of the tribulation. Elijah will appear on the scene and in repentance he will turn the hearts of the children of Israel. For this reason, many of us believe that Elijah will be one of the two special witnesses in Revelation 11 who will testify to the nation in the first half of the tribulation. And there will be a great turning to the Lord during those days. To this day, the Jews, when celebrating the Passover meal, set a plate out for Elijah, waiting for him to come. And at some point in the meal, they will send a child to the door to check to see if Elijah has come. I've often thought how funny it would be if you had a little old man with a long beard and and looking like a prophet standing out there. Are you Elijah? Oh, yes. (laughs) My weird sense of humor, you know. Anyway, but they check to see if Elijah's here. But you see, they don't understand that Messiah ultimately has two comings. And in relationship to each coming, he has an Elijah-like forerunner who calls the people to repentance. That is necessary in relationship to the offer of the kingdom and in relationship to the coming of the kingdom. That's the key. There's a forerunner who goes before the Messiah before the kingdom can come in. Well, when Israel is finally repentant, the Messiah will come and set up the kingdom. So indeed, we are still waiting for Elijah to come and be successful in calling the people to repentance, to restore all things. First comes Elijah the forerunner, and then comes the Messiah and his kingdom. So here's the overlap. Uh, My messenger, you know, that's from uh, Malachi 3.1. Isaiah 40, verse 3, John the Baptist fulfilled it. Um, We're going to have Elijah fulfilling this part in Malachi. But there's overlap in thought here, in these spheres. John the Baptist in the wilderness relates to the first advent of Christ, when the kingdom was being presented. Elijah will do so in the day of the Lord, before the second advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, But uh, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was a type of Elijah. But he didn't fulfill the ultimate uh, reality that will be experienced in the day of the Lord. Stanley Toussaint says, There is scarcely a passage in Scripture which shows more clearly that the kingdom was being offered to Israel at this time. Its coming was contingent upon one thing, Israel's receiving it by genuine repentance. John fulfilled Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1, but not Malachi 4, 5, and 6, because the latter passage is dependent upon the repentant response 
of the people. And then Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In context, the point is that John the Baptist, with an Elijah-like ministry, was indeed the prophesied forerunner going before the Messiah, showing that indeed Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. You know what the Jews understood? Before the Messiah comes, Elijah comes. There's a forerunner named Elijah who goes before him. And Jesus says here in verse 14, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. That's John the Baptist. He fulfilled an Elijah like he's the forerunner. He's the fulfillment of this forerunner as seen in the Old Testament scriptures. This formula, he who has ears to hear, denotes a solemn warning. The one better pay close attention because the message being given is all important. Puts the emphasis on human responsibility and human response. If indeed John the Baptist did fulfill the prophecies concerning the forerunner, you know what that meant? That meant that Jesus is the promised Messiah. If John matches these scriptures and is the Elijah-like forerunner, this means Jesus is the Messiah offering the kingdom. That's the deduction you need to make. Well, as I wrap up here this morning, once and for all, what are the odds that anyone could ever just, as a matter of happenstance, have a forerunner go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah? What are the odds that it could happen at just the right time with a national audience like John the Baptist had? What are the odds that it just happens to align with prophecy given 700 and 400 years in advance as seen in Isaiah and Malachi respectively? What are the odds that following this forerunner, a man with unparalleled signs and wonders ministry would come on the scene, Jesus? And what are the odds that this could all just be orchestrated by man? Well, I can tell you what the odds are. Zero. Zero. Only God could orchestrate the many faceted prophetic details that found fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality of John the Baptist to the letter fulfilling the forerunner prophecies as found in Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3.1 is one of the major evidences showing emphatically that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's stand and have our concluding song.